<laughs> it's good to hear it, though, isn't it? Goodness me, I am loved by the creator of the universe. He's going to speak to us. Turn with me in your Bibles, please, to two places. Colossians 1. I'm going to read a few verses from Colossians 1 so we can, we can ground this in a, my message in a certain context. And then we're going to go to Colossians 4, and we're going to read two verses from there. Um, and those are, the, those are the verses we're going to be spending some time in. So let me first read to you Colossians 1, verse 15. Not just this, not, this isn't just our context for this morning. This is the context of all things. Jesus Christ, he is the image, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. The firstborn meaning heir. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. You were gathering this morning as a church. And you think that's just a choice on a Sunday morning, somewhere to go. No, no, no. The church is head, is Jesus Christ. He is with us today. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now please turn with me to Colossians 4, verses 5 and 6. This is the end of the body of the message. There's a little wrap-up at the end, end, which is full of wonderful things, but this is the end of the main body. And Paul says, in light of all of this, in light of who Jesus is, in light of all the things I've said, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. But we believe that God has just spoken, and we believe that God is going to speak to every one of us now. So will you pray with me so we can ask his help? Father, you are a speaking God. By the power of your word, you brought all things into existence. And by the power of your word, you can speak, even today, light into darkness. So Father, we confess the darkness that resides in our hearts, no matter if we're uh, the most churched person in the room, and no matter if we are the... um, no matter if we're here for the very first time and we know nothing about Jesus Christ. Father, we know our consciences agree and, and say amen. There is darkness in our hearts. But the light of Christ can illuminate the darkness. I can chase the darkness away. Father, we believe that you have called us to represent you and to, and to speak of your son, Jesus. But we need your help. We need your spirit's help, not just for motivation, but understanding. So we pray that you would pour him out upon us now so that we would be wise and urgent evangelists who speak of the one who has loved us. Amen. Let me talk to you about an email that I got a few weeks ago. It's, uh, it was titled Action Points. It made me incredibly nervous. I've never had one before. I'm one of these people, I think, I was in a meeting. Uh, a little insight. Uh, I'm, not the, I'm not the most uh, administrative of guys. I'm, I'm more a, a, a moment person. <laughs> um, but I was in a meeting with about four or five people, and one girl, Sarah, a lovely girl, member of our church, sent me an email titled Action Points. And she was just spelling out, Lewis, you talked a lot, we got lots to do. 
don't forget you've got some stuff to do now. <laughs> and she gave me a few bullet points of things that I've got to do in light of the meeting, action points. You may have come across the concept. I was thinking about that in light of Colossians. We're in chapter 4, obviously it comes off the back of chapters 1, 2, and 3, and I wonder what, is the, what are the action points at the end of Colossians? Like, What is it that Paul wants the people to take away as they go out into their daily life? Paul doesn't know this church, but he loves this church. He's, he's had a message about this church from a guy called Epaphras, who's filled Paul in on some of the issues that are going on. And, and Paul's written a wonderful, a wonderful letter addressing particular issues in the church. One of those issues is um, there are heretics having a good time in the church. So action point number one, Paul calls the church to boot out or straighten out the heretics. Sort out the heresy, Colossians. Number two, work on church unity. It's a timely word, isn't it? If, there's a gather, if there is a gather, when one or two gather in my name, people will fall out also. That is true for every church on the planet. Work on church unity. It was true in Colossae. Number three, repent of particular sins. Legalism. Aestheticism. Mysticism. Rife in Colossae, Paul calls them to repent. In chapter three, he says, husbands, you've got stuff to work on, haven't you? In chapter three, he says, wives, you've got stuff to work on. Employees, you've got stuff to work on. Employers, you've got stuff to work on. But notice the direction of all of those applications, all of those, all of those action points. They're inward-looking, aren't they? They're all things that will build up and strengthen the church, but they don't advance the mission of Christ to the watching world, which is why I think Paul finishes his letter where he does, with his exhortation to consider mission. That's what we're going to spend our time thinking about this morning, mission. Because Paul knows how easy it is to forget about the lost, and Paul knows what it is to forget about the mission that Christ has called us to. Particularly when we've got stuff going on, right? Particularly when we've got stuff going on inside, whether it's stuff inside the church, maybe relationship strains or family issues, things going on in the workplace, maybe just things going on inside of me. I've got things going on inside of me, And therefore, life is overtaking, and I'm finding it very easy to miss the outside for all that's going on inside. Now, some of you might be feeling like that. And so the the thought of a bald guy standing up this morning and saying, let's talk about mission, well, that comes, that accompanies a certain sense of reluctance and, and, and maybe even guilt. Because mission is the thing that we're meant to do that we never like doing, right? talking to somebody who doesn't know Jesus, maybe even telling them that they're completely wrong. Well, nobody enjoys that. I certainly don't. I mean, so often my instinct is to say that mission and evangelism is a, is a, is a box I'm meant to tick, is a checklist. The must do, but the can't do. Now, I function as the, um, my, my role in our eldership is our I suppose I'm our church evangelist. I stand up and I encourage the church to evangelize. It's not my job to tell people about Jesus. It's your job to go tell people about Jesus. So I get up and I encourage people to tell people about Jesus. I love telling people about Jesus most of the time. But there's a big part of the time where I just have no desire whatsoever. You ever been in those conversations that literally land on your lap and yet you have no burden you have no desire no even capacity i don't even know where to start and then all of a sudden i get reminded of all of those awkward conversations that i've had in the past where 
but maybe relationships have, have taken a real sour turn as a result of me trying to stumble my way through a gospel presentation. Friends that I've had for years, and I've not enjoyed it. And so the thought of somebody getting up and spending 45 minutes, you'd be lucky if it's 45 minutes, by the way. But the thought of 45 minutes of a guy just shouting at me to tell me to go and do it again. Well, that's the last thing I want to sit through. Go and tell people about Jesus. Do you get filled with a sense of panic? Do you get filled with a sense of inadequacy? I do. I do. Or maybe, as I say, mission, maybe you're not like that at all. Maybe you're completely on the other end of the scale. Maybe you're somebody who loves it. You love to get into a conversation about Jesus, and you chase people down to talk about Jesus. How does that work out for you? (laughs) You know, as you're tearing down the the hallway after somebody in pursuit. (laughs) I'll trap them in the elevator. That's what I'm going to do. I mean, all the conversations and no fruit, maybe. You, you might have a number of thoughts that come to mind when I say the word mission, but let me tell you what I think Paul would say with regards to mission. This is how he would summarize mission. This is how Paul thinks of mission, joining God on his eternal purpose. Joining God on his eternal purpose. Mission isn't a tick box. Mission is the privilege of partnering with the Father. Take a look at um, Colossians 1 again. Let me explain this to you. In chapter 1, verse 15, Christ is described as the one in whom and through whom and for whom all things are created. In whom, through whom, for whom all things are created. You can't look at a single thing on this planet. You can't, think of a, you can't look at a single thing anywhere in existence. And it is not marked the property of Jesus Christ. We have an astrophysicist in our church. He is by far the brightest man I have ever met. He's also the sort of guy that loses his keys quite regularly. I think those two things often go hand in hand, right? But he's, um, he's an astrophysicist. His name is Chris. Um, and his job is literally flying around the world to go sit in deserts. Yeah, like he goes to the coolest places. He goes to like Hawaii. He goes to Australia. But if you ask him, what's he like in Australia? He's like, it's pretty dusty and there's nothing there because his job is to sit in a desert in an observatory staring into the sky, living nocturnally, not seeing any. It sounds miserable, really, doesn't it? <laughs> but, but really, Chris has seen. Chris's eyes. Hmm, how do I put this? Chris has seen things that literally nobody else has seen. Chris has seen things that literally nobody else will ever see. There are parts of this universe that only Chris has seen, and yet he's only the second to get there. Because the first is Jesus Christ, in whom, for whom, through whom all things are created. Jesus Christ, it is all made for him. That's what Paul is saying. Now let's unpack that a little bit. Every person, every place, every particle, it is all created for Jesus Christ. Let's go further back. Let's go back beyond creation. What was it that the Father was doing before he created anything? He didn't turn up for philosophy, did he? But what what was the Father doing? Was he just waiting? Was Was he just sort of flexing his potential creative juices? You don't flex juice, do you? That's ridiculous. Flexing his creative muscles. Was he waiting for a bunch of people to point a finger at and tell them how to live? No, the Father was loving before creation. 
we think, don't we, about the Father. I say, tell me, I ask somebody, tell me about the Father, Christians. And they'll say, well, first of all, he's the creator. Tell me about God. He is creator. And that's true. He is creator of all things. But is he first creator of all things? No. Because if he were first creator of all things, that would make him dependent on creation in order to be who he was. So ultimately, he is the weakest of all if he is dependent on us. No, no, he creates because of something else. So what is God firstly? God is firstly lover. Father. I love that. For all eternity, before he's created anything at all, he is loving his son. He is pouring love and delight and regard and pleasure and joy and passion towards his son. And his son, in return, is, is, is radiating glory and joy at his father. And he's loving his son in the spirit. And the son is loving the father in the spirit. That's what's going on before creation. And so now let's consider creation. What is creation? Well, creation is love spilling over. I've got a one-year-old son. His name is Griff. He is a dude. I mean, honestly, come and spend time with me. I'll show you photographs. My wife sent me a film of him dancing this week. It's lovely to miss your son dancing for the first time. It's lovely to be away from home. <laughs> uh, never mind. I'm sure he'll do it again. But we, so we caught it on film. There's something about the, the way I feel about Griff that just... There's something about that love that, in, that forces me, compels me to tell other people about Griff. I want others to enjoy Griff the way that I enjoy him. I think that's true of all fathers. There is something about their son that they want others to enjoy too. Creation, therefore. God didn't create us in order to show us who's boss. God created us so that others could enjoy the one in whom he has enjoyed for all eternity. Creation is God opening out his iPhone and saying, look at my son. He created us so that we would enjoy the one that he has enjoyed forever and ever and ever. In whom, through whom, for whom all things are created. So let me read to you some words from Genesis 1 just to sort of pad this out a little bit. I mean, you know the words, don't you? In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, right? Let there be light, and there was light. Now, what on earth was the light? Well, what on earth? <laughs> Maybe. But what on earth was the light? There's no sun. There's no moon. Where the, where's this light coming from? It's Christ. Can you see that creation is the Father making an arena for the light of his Son to radiate? Let the light of Christ shine. That's creation. The Father is announcing to the universe, enjoy my Son. Enjoy Jesus. A few years ago, I was reading through Philippians. We were preparing it, and, and I, it's probably not, I'm probably not the first guy to have this thought. I really hope I'm not. But it dawned on me that the whole gospel can be summarized in two words. Just two words. Enjoy Jesus. That is the purpose for which we were created. That is ultimately how, we, how we're saved. Enjoying who he is. Enjoying what he's done. 
enjoy Jesus. And that ultimately is the direction. That is the end game of all things. Think about Philippians 2. We were preaching through Philippians 2 before we did Colossians. Um, it's got to chapter 2, and, and I came across something that I found quite perplexing. One day, every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Right, that makes sense. Then the next bit of the sentence, to the glory of God the Father, that didn't make any sense to me at all. Every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord the glory of God the Father. The, the glory stops, or the praising stops at Jesus Christ, and yet the Father is delighting. I don't, I don't understand that because it's the Father that sent the Son into the world. Surely it should be every knee will bow and every tongue confess that the Father is really awesome, right? That's what should bring him glory. And that's true if God's a megalomaniac. But if God is a loving Father who for all eternity has delighted in his Son, then his greatest joy is others enjoying his Son too. One day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. One day everyone will see Jesus as the Father sees Jesus. Everybody will recognize Jesus for whom he truly is. And that brings true joy to the Father. Let me give you a human, a human example, a human illustration. You know this. I got married five years ago. I married Jenny. I turned around as I'm about to get married. As my wife is, is walking down the aisle, I'm just, I'm just in pieces. Jen is the most beautiful person I've ever met in every single way. She's about to... She's about to do something ridiculous. We should get on with this before she changes her mind. But here she's coming down the aisle. And I capture a glimpse of my father who is radiating with joy and delight. But he's not looking at me. He's looking at Jen. He's looking at Jenny, the bride, delighting in his son. And Philippians 2 made sense to me. One day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is why you and I were created, to enjoy Jesus Christ. And this is what Paul is getting so excited about in Colossians. You see, as Paul says in chapter 1, verse 6, the gospel which has come to you is indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit. And then in chapter 1, verse 23, the gospel which you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation, Paul's getting very excited. Why? Because one person to one person, to one person, to one person, the end game is getting nearer. The glory of Christ is taking residence. The Son is being recognized for who he truly is. You see, the glory of Christ is the end game. The glory of Christ is the delight of the Father. And sharing and spreading the glory of Christ is what you and I get to do as we partake in mission one chump to another. One garbled, nervous, stuttering presentation of the gospel to another. Chumps like Andrew Norbury who sat me down. Or really, I was in the back of his car and he... I'll tell you that story some other time. Um, but one person to another saying, Lou, do you know Jesus? You need to know Jesus. Chumps like Andrew Norbury, chumps like Epaphras, chumps like Paul, chumps like you. That's how the glory of Christ is spreading. 
the glory of Christ taking up residence, one person to another. And that's what Paul is getting excited about. That's what we get to partake in. And that's where I want to go when I next get scared to share the gospel. This is what I want to dwell on when I feel obliged and obligated and compelled by some legalistic force to open my mouth and speak. I think we all feel like that sometimes. Mission can be the thing that we have to do, right? Mission is the thing that we don't want to do, that we get scared to do. I'm, a, I'm an evangelist. I mean, I, like, I can honestly be preaching in front of my church. There's about 500, 600 people there on a Sunday morning. And honestly, I don't get scared. You guys don't scare me. Crowds don't bother me. I'm just one, I just, you know, I, I, I don't mind crowds. So I can be preaching the gospel in front of 500 people, and then I can jump in the car with my wife and my son, and we'll drive up to my dad's house. He lives five miles away, and he's not a believer, and we'll sit down for dinner, and then he'll say, uh, you know, he's kind. He'll go, Lou, what did you talk about this morning? And then all of a sudden, my mouth will go dry because I was fearless in front of a crowd, but I am a, I am a coward in front of my father. And I can't get the words out. And in that moment, I don't want to say anything. And in that moment, I wish my father had not asked. And in that moment, I feel guilty because unless I say something, what's going to happen? And in that moment, the only place I can go is, Father, my heavenly father is delighting, delighting in his child stuttering his way through the gospel. The next time you find yourself in a conversation about Jesus, and it is going terribly, Feel the Father's pleasure. Feel the Father's good pleasure as he looks upon his child, sharing the glory of the gospel of his Son, speaking light into darkness. Feel the Father's pleasure. I think Paul wants in this passage to raise up urgent, wise evangelists, and he wants to do it in three ways. Yeah, that was my introduction. So... Lucky you. It gets quicker. Ah, that's a lie. It doesn't. Um, Number one, time is short. Number two, walk wise. Number three, talk grace. So one, time is short. Two, walk wise. Three, talk grace. Right, time is short. Verse five, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. There's a sense of urgency here, isn't there? Making the best use of the time. Be urgent. Take every opportunity, Paul says, when you're before outsiders. Now, when Paul says outsiders, who is he talking about? Who are the outsiders? Well, obviously, he's talking about those who are outside the church. As this letter is being read on a Sunday morning, there are those that aren't there hearing the letter read, and those people are quite clearly the outsiders. But there is more to this than simply those outside the church. Because when we talk about it in terms of those outside the church building and the church gathering, we can, re- we can reduce this word outsiders to simply being a life choice. There are those who go to church on a Sunday morning, and there are those who go to Walmart. There are those who go to church, and there are those who play sports. Do you still have a Walmart, by the way? You go, in the first service, guys smiled at that. Have they gone under or something? Does it still exist? Okay. <laughs> Or maybe, oh, we wouldn't dare go to Walmart on a Sunday morning. Gosh, no. Is that what's going on? Those who are outside the church, they're not just making a life choice, are they? I mean, he's using a spatial word, outside, and he's used it before in Colossians. In chapter 1, in verse 13, 
when he describes the gospel. He says, God has delivered us from the domain. That's a space. That's a, ti- that's a space and time context. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. So we've gone from one space to another, from a domain of darkness to a kingdom of glorious light in his son. So when Paul is saying there are those who are outside, he's not just talking about outside these walls. He's talking about those who are outside the kingdom of his beloved son and therefore remain in the domain of of darkness. Now, I don't like that. I much prefer to think of it as a life choice. much prefer to think that my friends who aren't Christians are just making inconsequential decisions about what they're going to do with their time. But it's not true, is it? Because when you choose against Christ, you choose the darkness. Life without Christ is ultimately a death without Christ. I'll paraphrase C.S. Lewis. He puts it like this. Um, Maybe. On the final day, there will be those 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 who say to the Father, Thy will be done, and those to whom the Father will say, Thy will be done. Ultimately, he's just going to give us what we want. If we choose a life without Christ, now we will choose a life without Christ forever. And that's what Paul wants us to realize. Make the best use of time. It doesn't matter how happy and how successful they are. It doesn't matter how contented they seem or how together they are. They're facing darkness. So make the best use of time, Paul says. Now, what is the best use of time? Well, obviously, it's making much of the opportunities that you have to speak about Jesus. Make the best use of time with your children that don't know Christ. Make the best use of time with your neighbor. Make the best use of time with your colleagues and your booth mates and the guys that you car share with. Make the best use of time. None of us are guaranteed tomorrow. We can all think of people that we said so long to and we expected to see again but never did. And in this context, Paul, well, Paul's just mentioned the return of Jesus, which we, we can't forget is desperately close and will come at any point. In other words, there isn't an indefinite amount of time. He will return, people will die, so let's make the most of the time that we have. In the verses preceding this, Paul um, essentially says, pray the doors would open. Pray, pray the doors would open for the gospel. And here's the thing about a door. They open and they shut. I mean, if they didn't, if they didn't open, they'd be a wall. <laughs> if they didn't shut, they'd be a space. Doors open and doors shut. There's a time that we get to speak and then there's a time that disappears. Make the best use of time with those who don't know Jesus. But if this text is true then it's also compelling me. God is also asking me today to make the best use of the time that I have this morning. And that is to ask some of you who don't know Christ and know how yet to encounter Jesus Christ as your Savior, you who is yet to surrender everything to Jesus, 
the best use of my time this morning would be to ask you, please come to him. I've been talking to Lance and Scott. They've been telling me about this, this campus. I love this, I love this whole idea. It's true, isn't it, that over the last few months since this, this campus has begun, you've seen prodigals return. Guys who maybe were brought up in church families, maybe grew up going to church, but never became Christians, never were Christians. And then mid-teens, you wandered away. But now there's this church campus thing with a bunch of cool guys, a nice community. I'm going to start returning. And maybe you're somebody who's been coming along for a number of months by now. And you're enjoying the community. And you, you actually quite get stuff. You get quite a bit out of the messages. But you know, you know, don't you? Christ is abstract. Christ is out there. He's not in here. And I would also put it to you that you've heard him. You've heard him call you, haven't you? As, as we break bread and, and share wine and, and the word sin is mentioned, your conscience is crying out. You know, you know that you're not what you ought, you're what you ought to be. In fact, you're all out of arguments for why you don't want to become a Christian in the first place anyway. But the thing is, you just haven't got round to it. For whatever reason, it might be questions that you haven't got the answers to. I don't know what it is, but you're not there yet. Well, the best use of my time, the best use of your time, would be for you today to surrender your life to Jesus Christ. He loves you desperately. He shed his blood for you on a cross. When you were living your life as if God was a nothing, he came into this world, he stretched out his arms on a Roman cross, and he suffered the wrath that you deserve. He's not asking anything from you. He's not even demanding that you change. He's just saying, come. Come to me. The Father loves you. There's a repeated word in Colossians. It's the word beloved. It's the most affecting word for my soul. I can't think of a more delightful word for Jesus Christ than he's called in Colossians 1, uh, the beloved son. But you know, he's not the only one that's called beloved in Colossians. Epaphras is called beloved. The church is called beloved. Some of you hate yourselves. Some of you absolutely hate yourself because you know who you are and what you've been and where you've been. The Father calls you beloved. And because he loves you passionately, he can't cope, he can't handle seeing you walk away from his son. So come to his son. Because his son loves you so much that he would stretch his arms out on a cross and die for you. The best use of your time. Come to Christ. Don't put it off for tomorrow. Don't even put it off for this afternoon. As we're breaking bread and sharing wine later, sit and consider who it is that we're talking about and know Jesus for yourself. Secondly, walk wise. So there's this sense of urgency. There's a huge urgency. And if you're hearing this message, the first thing you want to do is get up and leave. Maybe for various reasons. <laughs> but... Paul's not asking us to be reckless with this. There's a sense of urgency. There's a, there's a sense of desperation. But he's not asking us to be reckless. He's asking us to be wise. 
which is, the, which is what Paul says in verse 5. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders. What is wisdom? Well, wisdom is that space between your thoughts and your actions. And what Paul is doing here is increase that space. What, what just happened? Huh? It was funny. Great. <laughs> Even without trying. Paul is asking for that, uh, that space between your thoughts and your actions just to increase. Be thoughtful in your evangelism. Don't be thoughtless. Let me give you two ways that you can be thoughtful and not thoughtless in your evangelism. Number one, be wise to who they are. Be wise to who your friends are. Be wise to whom, you, to whom you're speaking. Who are you speaking to when you're talking about Jesus? What do you know about them? Do you know them at all? What do they understand about the gospel? What do they understand about Jesus that's true and therefore can be affirmed? And what do they understand about Jesus which is false and therefore needs to be worked on and needs to be corrected? Those friends of yours that don't know Jesus, what matters to them? What are the hurts that they carry around? What are the longings of their hearts? Now, these aren't just um, sociological, interesting questions. These are vital questions when we're trying to work out who we're talking to and what they need to hear. What do they need to hear? Now, obviously, they need to hear the gospel, but that's not quite enough, is it? They need to hear the gospel, but the gospel isn't one size fits all. The gospel is nothing less than Jesus dying for my sins on a cross. It's nothing less than Jesus dying for my sins on a cross. Praise God for the gospel. But there is so much more to the gospel than simply Jesus dying for my sins on a cross. It is nothing less than him dying for me, but it is so much more than him dying for me. The, the Puritans 400 years ago put it like this. The gospel is this glorious diamond, this beautifully cut diamond that we, we can approach from a number of different angles and from every angle it is beautiful. I find that so helpful when I'm asking the question, what is it that these people need to hear about Jesus Christ? What angle of the gospel do I want to take? From where will I make my approach? Let me give you three examples of how, um, of how, of how I've been able to share the gospel with some friends who don't know Jesus Different angles on the same gospel story. Number one, let me tell you about Adam. Adam is 28. Uh, I know him from the gym. He's a dear friend. He lives around the corner. Um, I, I know, I know. I'm, I'm an Adonis. Uh, I work out. There's, yeah. We use gym differently in the UK. In the UK, we, we use the word to mean sitting in front of the television eating. But uh, <laughs> I don't know how you guys use it. Um, Adam is... 28, and he is, I mean, I've never seen, I've never known a guy to be so outwardly affected by his past. I mean, he's a together guy. He's, he's quite successful. But if you ask him about the life that he was living before he met his wife, I mean, he just, he just crunches up. I mean, he, he hates what he was. He's, he's, he's married to a, to a beautiful girl. He's got a little daughter. But he's got another child that he's had for years and years. And that obviously is a tense situation because she doesn't live with him. She lives with her mum. He um, used to work the door in, um, in a bar in Newport and did all sorts of dark things that he is ashamed to think about. He, um, he's very aware of his sin. And he is ashamed. Now, what's the gospel that Adam needs to hear? 
Adam needs to hear about the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, whose atoning death is atoning for all, washes every stain and every sin. That's what Adam needs to hear. It's the gospel, right? But it's a very different gospel to the gospel for Anna. Let me tell you about Adam. She add Anna. She's also 28. Anna is like so many of our friends. She's a serial monogamer. She goes from one sexual partner to another, but it's not like she's promiscuous. She, she goes from one long-term relationship to another. And she is passionate about the guy that she's with. And she'll pour herself out for him and she'll be with him. But then after about five years, there'll be something dissatisfying about that relationship and she'll move on to another guy. We all know girls like Anna, right? Maybe you're like Anna. So what's the gospel for Anna? What Anna? What angle of the gospel do we need for Anna? I want to say to Anna, Anna, let me tell you about Jesus Christ. He's the lover of your soul. He's the lover that you long for. You see, Anna, when you're pouring yourself out, when you're sacrificing for those men, when you're giving yourself away for those men over there, there is one who's given himself away for you. And when you were trying to make up for your unloveliness by seeking love in other, other men's arms, there's one who knows your unloveliness, who knows all about you, and he laid down his life to die for you. And uh, after five years, those men are not going to satisfy you anymore. But Jesus Christ, well, he's going to satisfy you in year five and six and seven and for all eternity, and his love will grow deeper and deeper. Same gospel, different angle. Well, what about Hector. Hector works every hour. He's an older guy. He loves his family. And he works every hour of the day. I mean, he, he just works hard in order to pr provide for his family. He's got an important job. He earns a lot of money. And he works hard in order to make sure that his family don't go without. Now, here's the strange irony about all that Hector's doing. Some of you might be able to resonate with this. Hector is doing everything Everything he does is for his family. And yet, what's being sacrificed in his pursuit of providing for his family? Isn't that strange? Think of the tension that that causes at home. At every disappointed look from his wife, Hector just gets angry. Because she doesn't understand that he's doing all of this for her and for them. And yet, every moment that he's not at home when he said he would have been at home, they're getting angry because dad's not around. But what's going on there? I mean, Hector is just desperate to provide for his family. He is desperate to make sure that they don't go without. Well, what's the gospel for Hector? What's liberation for Hector? Hector, let me tell you about Jesus, whose father promises to clothe lilies and feed stray birds. Let me tell you about Jesus, whose father saw your most desperate need and met it in the death and resurrection of his son. And if he's willing to do that, he's not going to drop the ball on all the needs that you see around you. You can rest and trust him. He will provide. Can you see that the gospel isn't one size fits all? It's one gospel, many angles. But secondly, we don't only have to be wise to who they are. We want to be wise to who we are. This is so important. They're different. They're different to one another. Guess what? So are we. We are different and unique in many ways. Some of us are unique in good ways, and some of us are unique in not so good ways. Uh, we have blind spots in our character, don't we? 
Well, of course, you wouldn't agree with that because they're blind spots, and by definition, you can't see them. <laughs> but this thing's about us. You know me well enough to know by now that there are certain things about my character which is going to make it difficult for you to receive the gospel from me. And it's exactly the same with you. We have rough edges, don't we? Sometimes there can be things about us that make it difficult to receive the gospel. Now, you may not have a clue what they are. This may get uncomfortable. In 1 Thessalonians 4, we'll have the words up on the screen, Paul is talking in a similar way about engaging with outsiders. He uses similar language. Let me read to you the words. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly, strange, and to mind your own affairs, mind your own business, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. In Thessalonica, or Thessalonica, as you guys would call it, um, there was a culture of um, mooching. Do you have mooching in this country? Being lazy. The guys would just, just not pull their weight, just just lounge around, just being lazy. And Paul just very sharply notices that, hey, in your pursuit to tell people about Jesus, Jesus ain't putting anybody off. You are putting people off. Your laziness is a real problem. So guys, go forth, tell people about Jesus. But whilst you're doing so, stop being so lazy because your laziness is a, is a hindrance. It's offensive. What are the things about you that are, that are a hindrance to the gospel? Where are your rough edges? Let me run through you a list of my own shortcomings that inhibit the gospel going forth. I'm not accusing any of you of being guilty of this. I am. I interrupt people when we're talking. I am harsh when I'm talking to and about people. Sometimes I talk about Jesus with such big theological terms that I make Jesus out to be some abstract concept and not a person that you can know and love. When I'm tired, I can be really argumentative. Um, I can be quite morose, cynical. I grumble. I can be quite negative. I complain. And sometimes when I'm talking to somebody, I can be on my phone. <laughs> I can seem so disinterested. And then I am surprised when they encounter disinterest from me, and then when I talk about Jesus, I encounter disinterest from them. Why should that surprise me? <laughs> what is it about you that puts people off? Cut it out. It's not like the gospel isn't offensive enough. I mean, the good news of Jesus Christ starts with incredibly bad news, news that nobody wants to hear. It's the news of need. It's the news of guilt. It's the news of sin. Nobody wants to hear this. The gospel is offensive to begin with. So strip away every other offense. Let me tell you a story of how my character has inhibited the gospel. I was 19 years old. I'd just been saved, maybe been saved 18 months. I was full of zeal. I was in a beach town called Bournemouth on the south coast of England. And I was doing some street evangelism. I was talking to different people about Jesus. This guy comes up to me and he's heading into BHS. It's a big shop that's standing behind me. Uh, BHS is a big home store where they sell everything. So I'm talking to him about, about Jesus. And pretty quickly in the conversation, we have a difference of opinion. Let me tell you how I know we have a difference of opinion. Because I keep talking and he walks away. Big, in, <laughs> big insight. But the difference of opinion continued because I wanted the conversation to carry on. So I chased after him. And I'd begun by walking next to him, but then he started accelerating. And by the end of this pursuit, I am running after him through a shop. 
It's worse than that because I'm shouting Bible verses at him. (laughs) The guy eventually stops. He turns around to me. I think, wonderful, the Holy Spirit has arrested him. He wants to listen. He turns around, he looks me in the eyes, he hears me mention something about Jesus, and then he headbutts me in the face. <laughs> I, have been, I have been headbutted for Jesus. <laughs> but have I really... Oh, have I just been headbutted because I was a tool? <laughs> I think it might be the latter, right? I mean, I think I was headbutted because I was a moron. I, in all my zeal and in all my passion, there was no wisdom that story, I, I, I will never forget it, and I don't want to forget it, because I wonder how many more people there were that less obviously were put off because of the way I was communicating. Newsflash, I can be a bit intense. That's what I learned. What about you? Maybe you don't know. Ask your spouse. <laughs> Ask your friends. Uh, maybe back up. Give them permission to be honest. Say something like, darling, if I promised to not go crazy <laughs> or not be defensive, what is, it that, what is it about me that could put people off Jesus? I think that's what Paul's getting at. Paul wants to raise up wise evangelists. Knowing ourselves is so important. In Proverbs 11, um, it says this, he who is wise wins souls. He who is wise wins souls. Thirdly, lastly, very quickly, talk grace. Look at verse 6. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Paul's talking about the content of the message. And what is the content of the message that we're to share? The content is the grace of God. Grace. That's what Paul wants us to talk about. Now, why does he want us to talk about grace? Because people never expect it. People don't believe it. They never expect it. Do you know at the heart of every world religion, there's this, it's, it's, it's a rigid ladder of law. At the heart of every world religion, no matter whether it's um, Islam or Mormonism or Sikhism, I mean, at the very, very center, there's this ladder and it's called law. If you do, if you become, if you reach, if you stretch, if you climb, then maybe God will love you. Now, the methods are going to differ. It might be pilgrimage, it might be prayer, it might be money, it might be becoming the best version of yourself. You've read that book, right? Burn it. <laughs> but the very heart of all of these world religions is this, is this command to prove yourself. Prove it and you will be loved. And here's the thing. I live in the UK. I haven't got any religious friends. I mean, all my friends are, uh, friends are atheists. But they live in exactly the same way. You think proving yourself is a religious thing? No way. Proving yourself is a human thing. My atheist friends just live their lives proving themselves in the workplace. They get uncomfortable when the new guy shows up. Because now there's somebody that they've got to prove themselves better than. They feel uncomfortable at, or they feel like just filled with self-loathing when their boss tells them the way that they could do something better. Maybe you're somebody like that. You fall apart internally when your wife criticizes you. (laughs) Maybe you just go to the gym and you look over your shoulder to make sure that nobody's looking as you start lifting. What's going on at your very heart? You want to prove yourself. You're the most religious person you know. 
if I prove it, I can show to the world that I am worth being loved. It's tiring, isn't it? People expect the gospel to be exactly the same, just with a Christian twist. Follow Jesus' words, follow his example, and then maybe God will love you. Well, that is not good news. That is not good news. But grace is wonderful news. The grace of God is this. When we can't prove ourselves, when we stretch all we can and all we can reach is a foot and a half above our heads, grace is the complete opposite. And by that, I don't mean God stretching down to rescue us. That's not good news. It's not God giving me a help up. It's not God reaching down. Grace is God coming down. Titus 2 says that grace has come. Do you know what his name is? Jesus. Grace has come and come amongst us. And he's come to rescue us when we couldn't rescue ourselves. He's come to justify your, ex- your existence. He's come to justify your life when you couldn't justify and prove your own worth. Now, if you spend your life trying to prove your existence, number one, you're going to be exhausted. It's tiring, isn't it? But then secondly, you're going to go into one of two places that you don't want to be. If you think that life is about proving yourself, you're either going to be self-righteous, and you're going to start looking down on everyone who isn't as good as you, you're going to start separating from those who aren't good, as good as you, and you're only going to be collecting with those who are, you consider to be as good as you. It's an ugly thing, but we're all inclined to it. You're either going to end up self-righteous or you're going to end up self-hating because you'll be caught out because you realize you're not all that you ought to be and you're not doing as well as you want to be. Is that the life you want to live? Exhausted? self-hating, self-righteous. Is that who you want to be? Jesus has come to preach, captive, to preach liberty to the captives. He says to every exhausted soul, come to me and rest a while. Maybe you're somebody here this morning who's aware that you just live on a hamster wheel and you stagger on it every single day. Well, Jesus says, come to me. Let me prove your worth. Let me justify you. Let me sacrifice my life so that you don't have to sacrifice yours. Because you will never give enough. I have given enough. Jesus proves you acceptable. That's the grace of God. And that's what Paul wants to season our speech. That's what he means when he says, let your speech be seasoned with salt. It's a strange phrase, but I think it's a reference to Leviticus. Now, don't worry. At the end of a message, when a pastor goes to, now turn with me to Leviticus, that is a terrifying thing, isn't it? That's like, oh no. But let me just read to you one verse that I think unlocks what Paul's getting at. Verse 13, you shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. Now, what's going on there? It's an insight into the life of the covenant community, the people of God, and they were to bring sacrifices in reminder of the sacrifice that God would make for them one day. And with all, with all of the sacrifices, God commands them to rub in salt or to spread in salt or to put in salt. And what is salt? Well, we see it is the salt of the covenant. Salt, for whatever reason, is a symbol 
of the covenant that God has made with us. It's a symbol of the covenant of grace. So in other words, what, what Paul wants is for us to, pardon the pun, pepper our conversation with the grace of God. He wants us to swallow it deeply into our own hearts and to let the grace of God then spill out into our own lives. Can I close by telling you about the grace of God? Can I close by telling you about what God has done for you? When God saw you choosing to live without him, when God saw you wanting nothing to do with him, when God saw you taking the life that he had given you and all of the gifts that he has surrounded you with, when he saw you taking the gift and ignoring the giver, when he saw you giving him the finger instead of, re- instead of rejecting you, instead of destroying you, instead of killing you, he sent his, da- his son to die for you. And the covenant of grace that he makes with every one of you today, if you give your life to Jesus, and if you are in Jesus, is as I love my son, I will love you. Though you fail me, I will never fail you. Though you choose to abandon me every moment, I will never abandon you. Though you want to reject me at times, though you want to leave me at times, though you are somehow disappointed with me, I will never abandon you, forsake you, leave you, or deny you. I love you. As I love my son, I will love you for all eternity. On your best of days, I will love you as I love my son. On your worst of days, I will love you as I love my own son. Let the grace of God flood your hearts. Let it spill forth from your mouth. Tell an exhausted world about an inexhaustible grace. Will you pray with me?